Well, this week we continue, as I mentioned earlier, our series in the Psalms. Today we're looking at Psalm 73, which was read earlier for you. So I invite you to turn to Psalm 73. If you don't have a Bible, there's some for you back there on the round tables. We'd love for you to get up and grab one of those, um, because it may have been just a little while before you heard that psalm. You know, you're trying to remember back. That was 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago. So feel free to grab a Bible and follow along with us. This is a wisdom psalm, a psalm of Asaph. Now, since, uh, since it's a wisdom psalm, I'm going to begin by quoting someone smarter and wiser than me. Um, a pastor named Tim Keller said that one of the biggest lies that we believe in America, one of our cultural lies, is this idea that everything is pretty much fair. Life is pretty much fair, but um, we believe, especially when things are going well, that you pretty much get out of life what you put into it. And that if you avoid the right things, if you avoid the, the wrong people, if you're never in the wrong place at the wrong time, then life will pretty much go well for you. Now, my brother, my little brother, is coming into town today um, to visit this week, and I'm, I'm reminded that if you have siblings, one thing that siblings teach you, they teach you one thing, they teach you this, life is not fair. And especially if you have younger siblings, you know this, life is not fair. Um, I remember when I was about five years old, my brother would have been two. And on my birthday, I'm opening all my presents, and I get to the end, and there's one present left. And, and I'm thinking, yes, I've got another present. And my grandparents say, oh, no, that's for your brother. Um, that's his present. I'm thinking, wait, my little brother is getting presents on my birthday? And they said, yeah, we don't want him to feel left out not fair. It's not fair for him to get a present on my birthday. It's not fair for me to have to see another wrapped present that I don't get to open as a five-year-old. But it's even more unfair that the following year, when it was his birthday, I looked for my present (laughs) thinking, well, it's his birthday, but I'm going to get a present too because no one wants me to feel left out. But there was no present for me. My grandparents said, no, he gets the present because he's the younger one. He's the baby of the family. He's more sensitive. We don't want him to get his feelings hurt. But you're older, and you're fine. It's not fair, right? When I say that phrase, life isn't fair, it's not fair, what comes to your mind? Is it the vacation that you worked all year for? only to get sick on the first day and spend the week in bed. It's not fair. Is it that two friends in high school are applying to colleges and one friend gets in and the other one doesn't, even though her grades are better because she didn't have an uncle on the alumni board? It's not fair. Maybe you think, I go to the gym four times a week, I eat salads every day for lunch, and yet I still don't have the body that I want, and my coworker eats junk food every day and never works out and is much better shape than I am. It's not fair. Maybe you think of the family whose daughter is depending on an athletic scholarship 
And when the recruiters are there for the, the game that really matters, the coach puts his daughter in instead of yours. It's not fair. Maybe you think of the couple who prayed for a child for years and spent thousands of dollars of medical bills and their neighbor with a charm life just announced that they're expecting their third child while this couple waits for a child and continues to pray. It's not fair. Maybe you spend your weekends with your family while your coworker is the boss's drinking buddy and your coworker gets the promotion when the time comes even though you felt like you were doing what was right, putting your family first. It's not fair. Maybe you put your, your career on hold to have kids. But now that you re-enter the workforce, you find that your male colleagues make more than you do. And it's hard to re-enter where you left. It's not fair. Maybe on a day like today, you think, I've struggled my whole life with self-doubt and insecurity because I never had a father, never had someone to support and encourage me. And I see these other people with, seem to have confidence. And I see their pictures of their family, and I wonder, why didn't I have that? It's not fair. Maybe you think of the middle-aged woman who grieves the death of her unarmed black son, well, the man that shot him celebrates the holidays with his, families, with his family and his friends. It's not fair. Maybe think of a child locked in a cage because her parents crossed the border seeking asylum. It's not fair. Maybe think of those who are living in countries ravaged by war, who've lost everything due to no fault of their own. It's not fair. Well, if you're like me, chances are somewhere along the way you had someone tell you, life's not fair. Get used to it. It's just the way life is. Get used to it. And when you see these tragic injustices, whether small and random or whether targeted, you wonder, what am I supposed to do? And maybe you wonder, what does God say about this? Does God also say, life isn't fair, get used to it? Well, the whole testimony of Scripture speaks to this. And what we normally do when we look at the injustice of our world, we're tempted to go in one of two directions. We're tempted to go to apostasy and just walk away. Or we're tempted to go to apathy and just close our eyes to it. But Psalm 73 gives us another option. See, throughout Scripture, God says this world is fallen and cursed and broken. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And he tells us to never get used to it. Never make friends with the fall. Never get used to the world's brokenness and say, this is just the way things are. In Psalm 73, he tells us that a righteous angst is the appropriate response to the justice to the injustice that we see in our world. In fact, a theologian named John Calvin, who was a pastor to refugees, to people living in exile, to people who had been the victims of oppression, he put it this way. He put it when he's talking about the testimony of Scripture to the injustice of the world. 
He says, no one can be injurious to his neighbor without wounding God himself. How is it that all being touched with weariness cry out, how long? He's talking about the Psalms that cry out, how long, O Lord, until you rescue me? He says, how is it that they can do this except that they know that this confusion of order and equity is not to be endured? And this feeling, if he says, the feeling of injustice, the righteous angst that we feel, is it not implanted in us by the Lord? It is as though God heard himself when he hears the cries and groans of those who cannot bear injustice. Psalm 73 affirms that. Psalm 73 teaches us what to do with injustice, whether big or small, random or targeted. It tells us to bring it to the Lord in prayer, to pray the angst, to pray, how long, O Lord? And in this psalm, we see the prayer of a man named Asaph. And because we're doing this series on the psalms and doing this series on prayer, we're not going to talk about the things in Scripture that, that all throughout Scripture teach us to plead the cause of the oppressed or to, to be involved in the work of justice. For this sermon, we're looking at how it relates to God and how we bring the injustice of the world, the injustice that we experience, to a God of justice and how he hears our prayer. We're going to look at three things uh, that Asaph does in this psalm. The first is we're going to look at the, the crisis, his crisis. We're going to look at his confession. And then we're going to look at his consolation. Let me pray for us as we do that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we need you to speak to us. Lord, we pray that you will use these words to tune our hearts to sing your praise and to bring our prayers to you, the Lord of the universe. We thank you that you hear us, and we ask that you bless the reading and preaching of your word today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, if we look at this psalm and we look at the first couple of verses, we see very quickly there's a crisis. Um, Asaph begins this psalm in verse 1 by saying, truly, God is good. Truly, God is good to Israel. That's a pretty basic doctrinal statement, right? God is good. Maybe you came from one of those churches that said kind of the weird Christian thing. God is good. All the time, God is good. Or God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Maybe you've said that. Um, Asaph says God is good. But he realizes that even that statement, as basic as it is, is complex. God is good. That's his doctrine. He believes it in his heart, or he believes it in his head. But he says, but for me, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now right there we know that this is a psalm and a prayer of doubt. Asaph is saying, God is good, but, but I'm doubting his goodness. Now you may wonder, I didn't know that you could doubt to begin with, and I surely didn't know that you could doubt in prayer. But Asaph is bringing these doubts to the God that hears his prayers, and he's saying, God, I'm doubting your goodness. I doubt this. I know the simplest affirmation of your character is that you are good, but I doubt that that's true. And then he actually even gives us this like, great metaphor for faith. He says, my feet almost slipped, my feet almost stumbled, I almost slipped, 
See, he's comparing faith in God to mountain climbing. You know, your feet don't slip and stumble when you're walking on level ground. You, you almost stumble and slip when you're climbing a mountain, when you're in a rocky terrain. And he's saying, faith is hard. It is difficult for me to believe that God is good, and I'm doubting. Now, what I love about the Psalms, as an aside, is how honest and refreshing they are. Last week, we looked at a prayer of sorrow. This week, we're looking at a prayer of, of doubt and a prayer of, God, help me to believe in you. And so my guess is that at some point in your life, you have identified with Asaph. You've thought, I believe in my head one thing, but I don't know that I feel it here. Maybe you've thought, I, I believe that he's good, but I doubt. See, normally, though, we think of doubt as kind of an intellectual exercise, right? We think of the person doubting, like sitting in the library with a stack of books, the skeptic trying to figure out what they believe. But Asaph shows us a different picture. And I love what Tim Mackey, um, a, a biblical scholar, said about Psalm 73. He said, in Psalm 73, we see that this is in God's word. The Holy Spirit inspired this prayer, inspired it to be written, inspired it to be in the Bible, to give to those of us who are doubting. And he put it this way. He said, in Psalm 73, we see that people's words doubting God are God's word to doubting people. People's words doubting God are God's word to doubting people. So this is not just a prayer to pray. This is a wisdom psalm. This is something for us to wrestle with and to learn. And so as we do that, I think we have to look at why he's doubting. Why is he doubting? He doesn't give us the exact injustice, the exact thing that he is struggling with. He doesn't tell us exactly what happened in his life, which I think is good because we can relate to it. But he tells us, I thought in my mind, I believed in my doctrine that God is good, but when I looked at the world, I saw that the wicked were getting rich off the backs of the poor. I saw the injustice of my world, and I wondered, is God good? Is God just? How can God be good if this is happening? And you, you probably remember hearing all this language about the wicked being fat and sleek and fatness coming out of their eyes. Well, in the ancient world... Um, they didn't have gyms and personal trainers that were signs of wealth. In the ancient world, food was the sign of wealth. And so you, you wore your wealth on your body. And so the, the wealthy had enough food to eat, and they were plump. And that was a sign of wealth. And he's saying, look, they're, they're comfortable. While I look at the, the righteous and their ribs are showing, and, and he describes the wicked. He says they live comfort, comfortable lives. They don't have any pain until they die. They, aren't, they don't have trouble like others have in verse 5. They're not stricken like the rest of humankind. And not only, not only is it that they, they have wealth, it's that it seems to be ill-gotten. It seems to be that they threaten oppression. And not only that, not only, it says in verse 8, they threaten oppression, but they also mock God while they do it. It says they set their mouths against the heaven. And in fact, they even say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? I can do what I want. 
I can get away with it. I'm not afraid of God. He's not going to do anything. He hasn't done anything yet. So why would I be afraid of his, ju- of, of his justice coming down on me? See, they're, they're wealthy. They're oppressing the poor to get their wealth. They're mocking God. They're arrogant, he tells us. He says they're always at ease in verse 12. They increase in riches. And this is intensified by the fact that Asaph, when he tells us what his life is like, he says, I am stricken all day and I get rebuke every morning. I have pain. I struggle in my life. And yet they have comfort. And so he's saying, God is good. I know that in my head, but my, my heart and my body, my experience in the world is telling me otherwise. And this is, this is the complexity of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so it makes sense that when you look at the world, the world would look differently, and you'd begin to doubt. But there's another thing that's at play here that I think even goes a little bit deeper. See, when we read that verse, verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, we translate that word prosperity, but the actual word there is this Hebrew word, shalom. He says, I saw the shalom of the wicked, the peace of the wicked, that their lives are working the way life is supposed to be, but when I look at my life, I see that it's not working. And he's asking, where is my shalom? Where is my shalom? And that may be the thing that gets him most. I've done what's right. I've followed God. I've even told other people, if you want shalom, if you want peace, then convert and become a Christian. Worship God. And yet, I look at my own life and I wonder, where's my peace? Where's the joy? Where's my shalom? Instead, I find affliction and suffering and sorrow. But these people who don't know God and don't worship Him and openly mock Him and oppress others and breathe out violence, they've got shalom. How is that? Why is that the case? God, what are you doing? You're supposed to be a God of justice, but I see injustice. And so I think what he's showing us here is that our doubts are not just intellectual endeavors. There's a social and emotional component to our doubts. We've got to look beneath our doubt. Isn't that the way it is for us? When we're doubting God, usually it's not just that we're skeptics and we have an intellectual question. Usually it's a, it's a breakup, it's a betrayal, a rejection. It could be that, that you love someone who doesn't share your convictions could even be the tragic injustice that you see in the world. Turn on the news and it, it makes you wonder, what, when is God going to judge? And so we too have to look beneath our doubts. I remember once I went to a professor in a moment of angst. I had to know some questions about the Bible. I had these intellectual questions. And I went to this professor and I said, I've you know, this is just keeping me up at night, I'm, I'm, I'm studying this. And he said, yeah, we can talk about that, but I'd rather talk to you about the anxiety that I hear in your voice. And so I did what any seminary student would do in that case. I lied to him. And I was like, oh, no, there's no anxiety in my voice. Let me sound a little more sober. Let me tone it down and say it in a calmer way. I have some intellectual questions about this. <laughs> but we are not just brains on a stick, 
We're people that live in community. We're people that live in the world. We're emotional people. And so, like Tim Keller says in the book Reasons for God, we have intellectual reasons for belief. We also have social and emotional reasons for belief. And that goes the same for doubts. We have intellectual as well as social and emotional reason for our doubts. And what I love about Asaph is that he's bringing it all to God and he's processing it with God in prayer. See, most of us think what I'm doubting is when I least want to talk to God. What I'm doubting is when I least want to talk to other Christians. But with Asaph, he says, no, I actually, I need to bring this to God. I want to reconcile, I want there to be an answer to this problem. I want to know, can God be trusted? Is he good? Is he a God of justice? And so you see what he does. This this brings me to my second point, the confession. What he does is he actually goes to church. That's what he does when he's doubting. If we look at verse 16, it tells us, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He is really struggling with this. And he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. See, that's the turning point for this psalm. He went into the sanctuary. What was it about the sanctuary that, that seemed to, to offer an answer to his doubt? Well, again, I think when I, most of the time, most of my life when I've read this psalm, I've thought, like, I kind of imagine like a prayer chapel at a hospital. Like he went into this room with some stained glass windows and he knelt down and he contemplated and, and thought through these questions. But when he says, I went into the sanctuary, what he's probably talking about is the tabernacle or the temple. And this is a big bustling affair with music and incense and the smell of roast lamb and tons of people singing and the word of God being read and sins being confessed and assurances heard. So he goes into the sanctuary and he worships God with God's people. And in that place, something changes in him. And we see this confession of faith. And you know, it's, worship is kind of this memory machine, right? When we go to worship, it reminds us of God's promises. It reminds us of how he's been faithful to his promises. It reminds us of what's true. It also gives us hope, which some have called a memory of the future. It reminds us of what will be true. And so when he goes into the sanctuary, he's pointed to the heart of God. He's pointed to God's character. And that's when he says, I discern their end. I discern the end of the wicked. I was reminded that God is a God of justice. I heard it in the sanctuary. And, and I was reminded that he has promised to judge, not always in this life, but in the world to come. Their true end, there will be, a just, there will be justice for the oppressed There will be judgment for the oppressor. God has not forgotten. He's not fallen asleep. He's not blind. He sees the injustice, and he promises that he will judge it, and he will make it right. And so Asaph hears this in the sanctuary, in this bustling communal place. And again, you see there like the the communal nature of our faith, that we need other people. In the times that we're most likely to withdraw We need to actually go to church. We need to go to the Bible study. We need to go to our Christian friends and like Asaph, have the honesty to say, I'm struggling with this. 
what I believe in my head and what I see in the world don't match up. Help me wrestle. Help me bring this angst to God in prayer. So he has this confession of what God does. He says, oh, I see the end of the wicked and I see that you put them in slippery places, verse 18. You make them fall to ruin. So he takes that mountain climbing imagery and he says, actually, they're the ones who will fall. They're the ones who slip. It's the wicked who will be judged. They're destroyed in a moment. God will judge them. So there's this confession of faith that God is actually good. God is actually a God of justice. He will not forget the cry of the oppressed. But then I think something else happens there. And I think maybe this is the more important thing that reconciles his prayer for justice, his angst over the injustice that he sees. He has a confession of who God is, but I think there's also a confession of who he is. There's a confession of faith, and there's a confession of sin. If you look at verse 21, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. What else do you see in the, in the temple? You see the sacrifices. And so I think when he has his hand raised, shaking his fist at the heavens, he realized, if I'm asking for God to judge... If I want God to be a God of justice, then I too will be judged by him. When I shake my fist to the heavens, I realize that I too have blood on my hands. I too am a sinner. I too am, am a party to the injustice of the world. I'm part of the problem. And so if I want God to come and judge, to come and wipe out the wicked, then I too will be judged. I too will be wiped away. He confesses his sins in the temple, confesses his sins at the sanctuary, and in an almost literal way, sees the blood on his hands because he sees the blood of bulls and goats and lambs that are the, the cost of his sin, his need for atonement. And so I, I think what, he's, what he sees here is this humbling admission that I'm actually, I'm not the answer to the problem, I'm part of the problem. If God is truly just, then I'm going to be judged. Now, you might be tempted here to say, well, does that mean that all we do when we see injustice in the world is that we repent? Is that it? And you might even say, well, this proves that his original doubts were sinful. He's saying, look, I was, I was like an animal before you. I was ignorant. And, but I don't think, when we look at the testimony of Scripture, we know that God says this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And we see throughout Scripture God calling his people to plead the cause of the innocent, to advocate for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the oppressed. We even see in the prophets how God himself is, is angry about injustice, about how his own people are shedding innocent blood, how they were charging the poor interest and sleeping on the coats that they took for collateral. And so I don't think that Asaph is saying, I'm repenting because I doubted. I don't think he's saying, I'm, I'm repenting because I was angry about injustice. In fact, I think what Asaph is telling us is that this should be part of our prayers. We should be asking, how long, O Lord, as John Calvin said. We should be saying, God, when will you come and judge? 
And so what is his confession of sin about? What is his ignorance? What is his being like a brute animal? I think the sin that he's confessing here is how in his anger he presumed himself to be more just than God and presumed himself to be more merciful than God. This is a Job moment for Asaph. If you know the story of Job, he's confronted with God's character and he realizes not only am I guilty, but I have no ability to execute perfect justice. God alone can do that. And I think he's also saying, I am not more merciful than the Lord. If I were God, I would come in and smite all the wicked. And yet, God is patient and slow to anger. Why? And so I think his ignorance, the thing that he's repenting of, his, his, you know, his embittered heart that he brought to God is saying that in my anger, I grew impatient for your justice and I thought that I could do it better. And so he confesses his sin, and he also realizes it's not for the Lord's justice that I am saved. It's, it's for his mercy. He saved me because he's merciful. I deserve the same fate as the wicked. I deserve to slip and fall. I deserve to be judged. But it's because of God's mercy that I'm not. I'm spared his justice because he is merciful. And that confession brings him to this beautiful consolation. You know, a lot of times what I tell people in my office when they're struggling, I tell them, I'm a pastor and you have called me to remind you of what is true. And I tell them, this may sound like cold comfort, but you need to hear it. And sometimes when we hear what's true, it sinks in And it becomes more than cold comfort. It becomes consolation. And that's what happened to Asaph. We look at verses 23 through 28. We we find this beautiful passage at the end of a psalm that started out like we didn't know where he was going. There was suspense. What's going to happen to Asaph? Is he going to walk away from the faith? He ends in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So he ends with this confirmation of God's love. This consolation that's way better than what he started with. In in other words, Asaph got his shalom. He got his shalom he realized my shalom is not in, the, in the, the fat, sleek body. My shalom is not in the possessions of the wicked. My shalom is not in even economic equity. My shalom is in God himself. He is my portion. He is my inheritance. And he's always with me. He holds my right hand. This is where my shalom comes from. It's not my circumstances. It's not when life is going well for me that I have peace. It's that I have the God of peace who has promised these insane promises to always be with me and to never leave me. And that is my shalom. That is my peace that can't be taken away. And it makes, it's, it's no surprise that he ends 
and verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. But for me. That's where he started. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But for me, my feet almost stumbled. And he ends with this other but. He ends by saying, but for me, it's good to be near God. The wicked will perish. But for me, I get the presence of God. I get God with me, God with us, Emmanuel. On this side of the incarnation and the cross, we see that in the person of Jesus who came to be with us, the God of peace, come to make peace between us and God. And he did it by enduring injustice. He did it by the shedding of innocent blood at the hands of wicked men. He used injustice of the cross to redeem those of us who were cursed, those of us who should perish. He redeemed us by his mercy, by submitting himself to injustice. And so when we shake our fist at heaven, when we ask God how long, we say, when will you come and make all things right? We see that it can't be that he just doesn't care. Because in the incarnation, we see him coming to be with us, to suffer like us, and to even receive the injustice of this world upon himself. And so may we, in our doubts, may we, in our injustice, in the small things that just aren't fair, in the random acts of unfairness that come to us, in the oppression that we see in the world, in the injustice of the courts, And the nations, may we too, like Asaph, look to the God who is near. Look to the God who came near to us. May we lift these things up to him in prayer and may we receive his consolation because he promises us that he will someday come and make all things new. He will make it right. He will not forget the cry of the oppressed. He will satisfy his own justice. And when I'm struggling with this, one of the places I look to, one of the the, the biggest resources, I think, in the Christian church for this is to look at the African-American church because they understand to live in this already and not yet, to look back at the cross and yet advocate for justice in the present while at the same time looking forward to the coming kingdom. And there's a hymn writer that I love, Charles Albert Tinley, and he wrote this song, Beams of Heaven. And this is what he said. He said, Harder yet may be the fight. Right may often yield to might. Wickedness a while may reign. Satan's cause may seem to gain. But there is a God who rules above with hand of power and heart of love. If I'm right, he'll fight my battle. I shall have peace someday. I shall have shalom someday. And until that day, we come to God in prayer. And so we're going to end today like we have in previous weeks with a time to pray, to bring our envy and our doubt, to bring the injustice of the world to God in prayer. And the band is going to come up now and lead us in that. They're going to play a song, and while the song is playing, I invite you to pray just like Asaph, to enter the sanctuary among God's people and to bring this to God.
And maybe he too will give you consolation as you confess your faith, as you confess your sins to him.